Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favorite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Matt Frucas, and Matt is from MF Architecture in Austin, Texas, and I've long been a fan of his work, and I did have the wonderful pleasure of interviewing him for the AIA Austin Homes Tour, and I said to Matt that I'd love to dig deeper into the psyche of you and what makes you tick and uh, why the beautiful architecture. So, Matt, welcome to Talk Design. Thanks, Adrian. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Hey, I would love to kick off with uh, a pretty regular kind of question. So at one point there was this very young Matt who was running around on his school shorts or whatever, and he was riding his push bike and stuff. And obviously was creative and obviously had some analytical skills and decided to become an architect. What got that journey uh, and where were you and how did it happen? Yeah, I think it began 
at a quite early age, although I couldn't have articulated it at the time. Uh, I had an interest in drawing and sketching from as long as I could remember. And I, th- I think it was partially related to the fact that I had a bit of a speech impediment when I was quite young. I stuttered and had some insecurity to do with verbal communication. And so I think that part of the way that I could express myself was through drawing, drawing things that, that I would see around me, as well as just creative making up things. So I think, I think it began at a fairly early age to begin thinking about fashioning the world around me, Airbnb to create things. And then at some point during high school, I began to develop those skills a bit further, both in, in, especially in art classes, but I was, was also quite interested in sciences and the math and, and math and a, a lot of things that relate to architecture, including proportion and scale. And so it, there, there wasn't a singular moment, that the, an epiphany that I recall, but I think there was a gradual interest that just built up over time and as one does in high school, where you have to choose a route, to choose a major to work toward, architecture just seemed to be a fit for me after, to that point, a lifetime of being interested in things adjacent or related to what I understood architecture to be. Yeah, wow. That's cool. It's interesting, like you said, having grown up with that stutter, and then so it actually probably pulled you back out of the crowd a bit and let you take the time to draw because otherwise drawing seems to often end up just being a class that you do as opposed to a discipline that you just fall in love with it's like reading some people go and draw rather than read Mm. yeah and one other thing I should mention is that neither of my parents were necessarily artistic although my mom uh, was a fairly accompl- accomplished calligrapher, so she had uh, uh, eye-hand coordination to do with with that. So that that influenced me a bit at a young age. Both and that's one thing architects often pride themselves on is their handwriting, in addition to being able to sketch and draw. So I think that had an influence. <laughs> Calligraphy also is another thing because it's all about space and form, and so it's all writing, uh, but it's in a very artistic manner as opposed to. Like you say, many architects, I've seen people where they critique somebody's writing on their plans versus what they've done on their design. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty funny, really, isn't it? But yeah, that perfection of form again and space. and But calligraphy is like an art beyond that. It's like because of the flow that it must have as well and the width of line that, that matters. She was obviously very aware, again, of my dad is a fine artist and he writes beautifully, like in calligraphy. And Mm. I know, because I see how he writes otherwise, when he's not writing in calligraphy, if he's just writing with a pencil, he's got very beautiful uppercase, like form, very even and stuff. But when he writes in calligraphy, he is truly just showing off. And, And because... The things that you get from him in calligraphy are just to show off. But because he can, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's interesting. Um, I don't know. You, do you know the device of Remarkable, which is a an electronic sketch pad? Have you seen them? So it's like an exosketch. I haven't, seen those. I haven't used it, but I have seen those, yes. Right. So I use one and my wife uses one, and she writes in calligraphy just about all the time because she loves how it looks. 
because it's so easy <laughs> on these just write normally but it, it you don't have to shift your pen or pencil it just creates it but engages her in feeling like she's creating something beautiful just cool kind of cool yeah I like that. That that's probably the only cue that you got for architecture. And then when you were when you discovered it was architecture, your kind of skill set formed into because it could have ended up in any kind of the arts. What was the journey from there? What where did you study and where did it all kick off? Did somebody say to you, "Hey, you should try architecture"? Yes, my high school art teacher, I recall, Dr. Oliver, was the one to to suggest that I try architecture. I believe it was my freshman year. I was still four years away from college. They planted oh, wow. that seed, maybe not jokingly, uh, but he would reinforce that. And, and so that's when it first popped up. But in, And um, I realized when I started uh, my undergraduate degree in architecture at UT Arlington in the Dallas area, that um, it was an it was a humbling experience because um, it it opened a whole world that I just never knew really existed in architecture. Mm-hmm. All, all of us have experienced buildings in some form, but I had no idea what all went into the design, um, documentation, and construction of a building. There was so much depth all the way across that spectrum, from the ideation and developing of a concept carrying that all the way through the development process and then the more technical components. So it was very eye-opening and and very humbling to realize how much I had to learn. At the same time, I realized that this was absolutely for me. And I, I, I really enjoyed learning every aspect of it. And so I was fortunate to work with uh, some great professors and mentors for my undergrad degree. And I went on to get my Master of Architecture at, at Harvard University in Boston and worked with an, just a, another group of amazing faculty members who have designed award-winning bu- buildings all over the world and also have a conceptual, theoretical way of thinking as well. And so I, when I, in thinking back to why I chose architecture instead of any other creative field, I think it was mostly to do with trying to impact or affect the built environment and somehow that seemed as though there could be there could be more reach or, or a chance to to access or may, maybe just have a, a larger impact or yeah, change in an urban environment or in a, in a rural environment, whatever the case is, as opposed to the fine arts, which might be isolated to art galleries or very specific instances. Right. So I think, I think it was probably in this notion of doing something artistic that could have a bit more reach and impact, I I believe, was what drove me. Yeah, okay, that's interesting as well. I think that that piece around the difference between, say, one of the fine arts where it does end up in a gallery, I think that often when you go to a, a cityscape and you see an amazing sculpture, that must be for them something like going to down a neighborhood and seeing a house you've done or somebody else's amazing house doesn't really matter really but that must be a similar thing where all of a sudden it's in a public space and it's embraced by many rather than a few when it goes into a home yeah that's one of the interesting things i find as well is in our practice we work across scales and types 
meaning that we, we've designed uh, houses, custom houses, and speculative houses, as well as commercial projects. And when we cross types, there's a big difference in the impact. When you, so when you design a, a custom home for mm-hmm. one family, you can make a very large impact on a very small mm-hmm. number of people. And then when we've designed public projects, commercial projects, you make a very small impact on a larger number of people. And there's something interesting about that. And, and neither is necessarily better than the other, but they're just different in terms of how much how much we can tailor a scheme to a very specific end user, or yes. if we have to pull back a little bit and think about the fact that it needs to be a little more accessible to a larger audience. And that's one of the more fun and interesting components that differentiates architecture from the fine arts in that it has to be ultimately functional. Uh, it has to you know, be occupiable. It has to serve very, sometimes very daily activities, sometimes very special activities. Uh, but, but that is an interesting component in t- to do with how it impacts, what that scale and reach of the impact is. I, I totally get that. Like I was talking to an, an architect in Japan and he was saying to me, his, one of his professors had said to him, Mark, you can't stand out in front of the building and tell people what it is. The architecture needs to speak. And it made me laugh when he said And he said for him it was like, you're so right. So I've got an opportunity to make this build. He was talking, does buildings and more commercial. I've got, yeah, I've got, this is my opportunity to make this building speak and have its own personality and be something to a multitude of people. Whereas when you go into that residential and one family, as you say, it has a deep impact on a very small number of people. But processionally, it has a deep impact on families upon families. Like if, if somebody comes and gets you to design a home for them, their family, if you go back to like your story of, of growing up, their family gets to grow up in something like that. Their friends get to experience it and they have a, a different level of appreciation that they carry forward into their life from it as opposed to somebody who maybe grew up in just a developer home that may be nice but doesn't have that refinement or that thought that's been put into it it's designed for everyone again not just designed for one family that's a great point to bring up this that sometimes there can be very nuanced layers to that and it's not necessarily speaking to only one audience it can, I think of an analogy, sometimes there are, are films that are made, movies that are made. Perhaps it's a movie that's catering is even a children's film, but it's got other layers that really only an adult would, references that an, only an adult would capture. And it can be seen for different, and appreciated from different audiences. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have where we want to design something where at a bare minimum, all audiences can appreciate some component of it. And it might just have to do with some of the utility and the way that it actually works or something very understandable, light and shadow and some very simple elements. Whereas others might see the architecture and understand very specific references or winks or nods that are made to other architectural pieces from the past that are there as well. I think these things can mutually coexist to where you can very directly make something for one specific audience, but then there can be threads of things that lace across that others can begin to appreciate. I think most good art forms do that in some way to where there there are different ways and different ways to read it. 
and or even just the way that it's experienced over time. It's just like a, a piece of poetry could be read multiple times and one might get something out of it a little bit different each time. So even the same user yeah. might pick up on different things along the way. So I think that's one of the fun challenges to see how much we can, in, in what ways we can be able to deal with things, knowing you say that we can't have a docent there to explain all the time yeah. to walk someone through. And so you have to understand that some of this will be very implied and uh, some people will get it. Some people won't, but hopefully everyone appreciates some component of each building. I think that's a great way of describing it. And I love the movie analogy. I often say to people, you go to the same movies, you find a movie you love and people watch it four or five times. And each time they become more familiar with what was familiar and they become deeper into what they never saw. And when you see a great directors, but also movie sets, the mm-hmm. amount of detail that is covered in a movie set for the first pass, most of it's wasted, but four or five times in, you really can see things that tell you the deeper story. And there's all these psychological cues that are placed in the right places and stuff like that. And unless you can break it down you never see it but then when you talk to a set designer you see how deliberate they are about what they do and you go will it even be seen no it might be cut out and it might only be in three seconds of it but it's fascinating when you do see it and when you get to experience it at that level I love it in in houses when people say oh I just discovered, and they've been living in it for a couple of years, and sometimes they've discovered something and it's dawned on them. They've always enjoyed it and they've just discovered how or why or when or it makes the difference. And I think that's really lovely as well. The house keeps revealing itself. The building keeps revealing itself. It's (laughs) It's fun. So... The other thing that we were talking about earlier was just around the thing of the layering. So going from where we are, the layering effect of you you take your land and then you take your architecture and then you take your interior design. And then for different people, you're engaging different points at different times. So the example might be in the day you're engaging more landscape and in the evening you're engaging more interior. And when we look at how houses are used, that's maybe shifted a little bit post-pandemic, but certainly pre-pandemic, houses were used differently than they were during the pandemic. And then the massive change that people suddenly un- or desired their home to give them post uh, pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. And one of the realizations that I had was, is that most homes aren't designed to be a schoolroom. They're not designed, they're designed not necessarily to be occupied all day, every day by everybody. Like the whole family isn't always there. And yeah, I'd love to talk about how that shifts in your world or how it shifted in your world. And then also how the interiors can tie into everything in that picture as well. Because I think it's a, I think we've shifted in the psyche of what a home de- delivers to people. It's a great question. We, yeah, I would say the pandemic has 
simultaneously overhyped and underhyped in different ways all the time and in terms of its actual how it's actually impacted us uh, setting aside the health impact just setting aside the actual health impact and that uh, the clinical component just the, the mental impact um is something where i think it's interesting because like we it's possible for us to go for days without ever yeah, directly talking about the pandemic or yeah, or addressing it but it's ever present it's in, in, in its impact Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we did see initially in, in the, 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 the first lockdown, um, we did see an uptick in potential clients in the residential sector. So our commercial projects understandably uh, went on hold. We were designing a few restaurants and office spaces at the time. Those went on hold during a lockdown. And then we saw this uptick in residential projects. And I think it had to do with what you're describing is that suddenly houses were expected to be not only a house, of course, but as you say, a school, a, a, a gym. <laughs> an office, a, a gym. An office, a gym, you have some you have space for recreation and social components, all overlapping with everyone in the house at the same time. And 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 I th- so I think that puts some pressure on people to think, maybe we should think about that remodel project we've been considering, or maybe we should consider developing that property that we purchased and 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 I think that it, the the longer term impact is and will be expecting a little bit more flexibility in terms of the spaces we design and that can relate both to the interior spaces and then the connection to the outdoors as well and being able to have swing spaces if you will that can you can share areas from one to the other between between two different interior spaces or an exterior and interior space to just allow for flexibility that ultimately one, that's one way to think about sustainability is just the ability to adapt as things change over time. That if something is incredibly specific and every square inch, square inch is so dialed into one specific function or program, if that becomes obsolete the minute that the technology changes. We saw this happen, for example, with TVs. There were a lot of custom cabinetry and custom millwork that would have been designed in the 90s, the 2000s to the sizes of TV screens at the time. The technology changes completely and suddenly that, you know, that really dialed in millwork and cabinetry suddenly doesn't work for the new technology. And so it's architecture has an interesting role sometimes to try to find a little bit of a loose fit in mm-hmm. certain ways. There are certain things that are, are certainly fixed in terms of uh, the plumbing and some of the infrastructure, the structure and other infrastructure to do with the building. But it's important to begin to define like what are those components that are quite stable and set and where can there be some leeway and some adaptability. And so we, with all of that comes an interesting focus on interiors. And I think architecture, we largely think about architecture to do with designing the shell, of the building and, and architecture school and the profession. We talk a lot about elevations or facades or really thinking about the overall massing, which certainly is important. Um, to do with the you know, with the, the presence of the building within its context and to do with the approach to the building. But the majority of what we see in experiencing a building is, of course, the interior and those interior elevations, those interior sequences. And as a result, in, in recent years in our practice, mm-hmm. we've taken on more and more interior scope to where we almost exclusively do the both the interior design as well as all of the architecture design for each of the buildings that, that we're hired for. And there, there are a couple of different benefits to that. One of them is just to do with a, a practical benefit, to do with streamlining the flow between designing that uh, shell and the interior fit out, 
uh, allowing that to happen in-house and within the same yeah. architectural software 3D uh, technology. But then it's, it's, but it's much bigger than that in terms of really being able to design holistically and create an overall ensemble. And that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't mean that that overall ensemble needs to become something that is so tight or so restricted that it doesn't. Yeah. For example, some some clients might want to change out their collection of art over time. Mm-hmm. And and you, you can design in a way to where we're designing the outside and the interior as a holistic piece, but it still can allow for its variability. To, it can absorb some change within that system. And so, so we've really enjoyed that, enjoyed taking on that interior scope and being able to think through each of those things. And some, sometimes it, there's a very literal connection. For example, we'll have maybe a, a brick wall on the outside of the building that tracks directly inside the house. And that same brick wall continues from exterior to interior. So, so some of the architectural moves begin to set up interior moves, the same thing for floor surfaces that might continue between inside and outside. Uh, some of that, some of those architectural moves that you just naturally uh, flow in and out. And then other components can live a little bit independently. There can be almost vignettes that can exist within that overall shell. And so it's, so the pandemic has, coming back to the, your initial question, the pandemic has influenced the way that we think, even though I think we're largely in denial in terms of the impact that it's really had. <laughs> yeah. One of those just being able to allow for a little more flexibility and adaptability within with within our houses. And, and that, and again, both to do with the architectural components, the interior components, and then interior and exterior that flow from inside to outside yeah Uh, all those things are quite critical to the overall experience and i think that the pandemic puts some pressure on us to to really rethink those and and therefore allow our houses to and buildings in general to sustain more into the future i i totally agree i think and i love the fact that flexibility becomes sustainability i think that was a lovely point that you made there because I hadn't never thought of it that way myself and I hadn't heard anybody else ever say that but that flexibility does create sustainability it means that the house or the yeah the house can operate in more schemes or more ways than you imagined by making it flexible and that obviously as a home ages so often a custom home is always designed with one set of people in mind, that doesn't mean they don't sell it. And it doesn't right. mean that somebody doesn't inherit it. And that means that home goes well beyond the people who it was first designed for. And again, that flexibility creates sustainability in that space as well, which I think is really cool. That and is then, one, uh... I was going to add just one. Yeah, one no, go, go, go. Yeah. Absolutely. Since the conversation we have with all of our custom clients is getting a bit of a sense of the the duration of this investment. I get it. it's, it's, it's always some sort of investment. We, we try to really respect the fact that this is often the biggest investment mm-hmm. that our clients might make in their lives. And we want to really understand how long-term of an investment it is life is unpredictable and sometimes even if resale is not intended it could be a possibility but usually you have some sense of whether or not that's on the horizon or not but when we design speculative houses uh, that are designed and built just to be sold in that case we really have to think about that flexibility and it mm-hmm. cannot be hyper specific based on something that we think is interesting 
or that might just work for a very narrow audience, we have to think a little, pull away a little bit from dialing in very specific programmatic components and at the same time, not making it completely generic either, where it becomes unappealing to everyone because it's just a little too safe. Yeah. And so, yeah. so that's something we think about a lot and really enjoy trying to dial that in for custom clients. And then the same thing for how much risk our developer clients are willing to take on for spec projects and how much you're dialing it in for a certain market or how much they want to broaden that window. I think that's a really interesting point as well when you play between those two marketplaces. I was talking to the other day a hotel designer and Mm. she was telling me how the difference that Airbnb created in the hotel market So hotels were largely accommodation and at different levels of accommodation and different levels of luxury. And brands would have one big personality. Maybe Hilton was a brand that had a certain personality and Four Seasons another that had a certain personality. And that personality would be very strong no matter where the hotel was built. So there would be the elements that always ran because they were part of the brand. And along comes Airbnb, and Airbnb throws the market into disarray because people got to experience other people's curated spaces. And all of a sudden, the hotels looked like they were big sort of generic pieces which has, it's a bit like McDonald's, it has a brand value because you know what you're going to get when you go there. And we all like certainty. But with this short-term mentality of suddenly selling an experience versus selling accommodation and that your Mm. marketplace became an experience market and accommodation became second. And in it, homes, people go, and I know clients who have done this, They have an idea of a type of home that they want and they've been scrolling through Instagram or on Pinterest or something and they see a space and it is a Airbnb and they go, we can go and experience that. So they'll book, they'll go, they'll stay, they'll experience that piece of architecture and interior and then they'll go, we want some of these elements in our home when it's going to be our custom home and suddenly the broadness of being able to, it's a bit like going and buying a car. You could go and sit in 50 different cars and 50 different showrooms and get this different experience and drive them all too and get this different experience of them. But we don't get to test drive houses until the likes of Airbnb or test drive. We did with hotels originally. So now hotels, one of the ones that she'd worked with was Indigo Hotels and they have a very strong design piece which is or story which is it must tell the local neighborhood that hotel must be of the lake local neighborhood and she's described describing doing one in Phuket to me where you know you had sea gypsies transvestites my um kickboxing and the hotel had to become a story of the local neighborhood and so you had all these different things You think to a home now, people have been exposed to so many things, and they are constantly, that their palette of what 
they feel is going to be their experience has grown so much and they're very they're far more educated or maybe not educated aware maybe i often think that it's amazing when you see people come with a whole bunch of pictures of different ideas that they like and not one of them has a connected thread other than it's under a roof and got walls around it <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to make you've got to work out which one's winning in the right. outcome of the project. And you, right. I've certainly seen that from Airbnb and then I've certainly seen it from the pandemic as well, where people are looking for uh, maybe a slightly shorter term thinking of what will the experience be that I'm creating here. I think it, that's a good point about incorporating different precedents and influences and trying to find that sweet spot of how many things we can realistically incorporate where I thought you were going with the story with the analogy of the cars. I thought you might say that you could go test drive 50 different cars and you might like one thing about each of those 50 cars, but ultimately there's not going to be one car that can encapsulate it. You know, what, what you would get out of a sports car versus the carrying capacity of a minivan. Yeah. And you try to have both and the same vehicle, it, it can be a bit of a conflicted hybrid that doesn't do either very well. And I, I do think that architecture has more flexibility than a vessel such as uh, a car. Yeah. But there are some limitations like that in terms of all the different influences and all the inspiration images. And often we say that a lot of our job is to, to really try to edit and, and weed it down to what the most critical priorities are and what the essence of this is. So we try to be a choreographer to prevent it from becoming a Frankenstein of 50 different things <laughs> that are all just collaged together, but don't really work together. And so it, is, it doesn't mean it has to be just a very simplistic, singular thing, but it helps to try to define and funnel it down to things that can at least begin to work together. And, um, and, and that's one of the fun parts that we enjoy. We enjoy working that through. And we don't expect our clients to understand that from the beginning. That's part of the process. It's part of what we call pre-design is for us all to sit down and discuss everything from the quantitative components of the square footage, the room counts. Yes. But then the qualitative components too. What is it you're trying to do here? And we want to, we enjoy walking through that and discovering that with the client to realize this is what we're actually doing. This is what we're after. This is our target and our goal. And it can, we course correct along the way and, yeah. and shift, but it's, that's part of the process is boiling it down to what really matters, what, which is necessarily different than each project. Not to mention, of course, the site constraints and the or, or site opportunities that exist yes. as well. Those things influence each scheme. And it's a way of trying to encapsulate as many things as possible that are all interests, but making sure that it all still resonates and works as an overall scheme. Yeah, that it's got one as an overall scheme. It belongs. It's so interesting the way you put that. I love that piece about the Frankenstein. Because so many people end up in life with Frankenstein parts to their life where everything's just bolted on. And they never really get the joy of something that just all falls together. And with that, like you go back to the kind of clients that you work with and also that make the journey of it most joyful for you as the designer, as well as for them as the client, as, as clients that recognize that they're going on a guided trip. They've never been down these 
rapids or even if they have even if they're a whitewater rafter and they've been down a hundred different rivers the new river is still the new river and it's Mm -hmm. still a new journey with new land and new opportunities and new perspectives in a new time and getting them to let go enough or to embrace enough on both cases like hold on tight enough and coming on this guided journey I, I'd love you to tell me about that within your practice because I know that in just about everybody's practice, it is something that makes or breaks not the architecture, but just the joy of the journey. Yeah, the process is so key and, and it is necessarily a process. We we find that no no two projects are ever identical, nor would we want them to be. Like part of our you know, being... Uh, creative people being a creative team we embrace that challenge of of some of the variables some of the ingredients being a little bit different each time that prompting us to do something a little bit different and unique at the same time we're building upon institutional knowledge that we have we have experience of things that generally work or don't work based on the project type and scale and budget but Mm -hmm. but this is a good opportunity to speak a bit about how how i work and how we work as a team we we're, we're very collaborative in several dimensions. And I mean that both internally as well as externally. So internally, I very intentionally hire a a talented group of architects who I want to influence the design that we do here. It's very much, it's it's certainly not a top-down authoritarian practice where I have all of the ideas and everyone else is then a drafts person just our minions just executing that I, I first should credit sarah johnson my co-principal architect so sarah and i do run the practice but rather than just running it we also participate in the design process and that's so that internal collaboration allows for a lot of ideation a lot, we, we come up with a lot of rather brainstorming as another way of talking about that of different ideas and different design ideas and we always want to support the best idea at the table internally. And then the same thing to do when we speak to the clients or consultants or a general contractor, everyone has different insight and perspectives and expertise. And hopefully we can all set aside our egos and all get on board with the fact that we want this project to be as good as it can be. And it doesn't really matter who came up with that first idea at this stage or this stage or this stage, but that we all just rally around whatever makes the most sense, what's most appropriate for this project. And so what that entails is our clients being a little bit open-minded in, the, in this process, having the mindset of we're engaging in this journey, we're, we're all going to get there together, we're all on the same team, and uh, let's navigate the, these uncharted waters together. And though we have more experience on, as you used to use that analogy, on different waters before, this will be a little bit different, mm-hmm. but we can use our experience to guide along the way and, and help the client make informed decisions. Ultimately, it is up to the client to make decisions um, along the way to sign off on things. And so another layer to that we have in our way of working is uh, a bit of optioneering. We'll often show at least two, maybe three options to a client at different phases. And part part of that is a way of trying to understand what the way a client thinks. And so if we show two or three options, for example, to just in, for the site design, the overall site mm-hmm. the master plan, and talking about three different ways to approach the site, how, how, do, how might you as the client or the owner 
approach on a day-to-day basis enter in by car or by foot? And how does that set up the way that you would move to the site? And and, in getting them to talk about that and start to establish their preferences that otherwise might not become clear if we just showed them one scheme or just selling them one scheme, they might not understand what some of the variables are. And they might realize actually for the way that we live and the way that we operate for our family, this makes much more sense to, to filter through the site in a specific way. And so by, and that can happen all at many different phases along the way. And that allows it to be that process and a discussion uh, and something that we really develop together that we guide through and help develop that together but it's not about us just selling the scheme along the way or or us going off into a laboratory and creating (laughs) our our masterpiece and then saying here you go you're welcome Mm -hmm. instead saying here's what we're thinking and these are the reasons why we're recommending these two or three directions we could go we think any of them have potential but it really starts to become very specific and dependent upon preferences at this point. And so that for us tends to be very rewarding. And it and it, it does require, again, a bit of confidence in the process and sort of mm-hmm. faith in the process that and the faith in the process that we all commit to this and, and none of us know exactly what it will look like in the end. But that's part of what makes it so fun. And the difference between just buying a house on the market that's just yes. out there. This is mm-hmm. different. It's going to be something that hopefully is much more than any of us could have imagined. And so that that is a lot of what we enjoy about our job is those epiphanies that happen along the way, these aha moments. So we realize, oh, this is it. This is th- that this is what we're all, this is what the scheme really should be that begins to reveal itself along the way and never could have been premeditated often because there's just a lot of information to do with site research and discovery along the way for the site. Or then some of the preferences and interests of the owner begin to unveil themselves and we realize, oh, this is what we're actually creating. That's a very rewarding moment. That's probably the most rewarding moment of the entire process for me is when that moment when that light bulb, that aha moment happens and and the client is as excited about it as we are. The second most exciting moment being when it's built and the clients are in in it, using it as we'd all intended, seeing that life-changing aspect is also very rewarding. So we have that cycle continues and we learn as we go and that critical feedback loop informs the next project and so on and so forth. And having a a team that in your, the people that you employ and create your team, them all having a, a voice, I think is really like valuable because they're seeing it, they're seeing perspectives and uh, questioning other cues and ideas. And then it does become this broader collaboration. I think that with clients, often they're learning themselves in the process because they've never been, not never, they may have never been in a process where they've been questioned or unraveled in the same way to find out what makes something special to them and understand it more deeply. I love the fact that, and I suppose it comes from architecture and the sense of the different ways you approach the home, or the I'm talking in home, but it doesn't really matter whether it's a home or not, but the different approaches that it is and the mass of the building and how it settles into the landscape or sits on top of it or how it reacts and that actually sets up an emotional sense in people 
And then there's their journey from the way they approach it into it. And then there's what it delivers once they're inside it and all range of different emotions. And then what their friends and family discover in that same uh, journey, because theirs will be slightly different. They won't necessarily park in the same spaces. They will not necessarily come into the house through the same space. I always think this is a fascinating part of the overall, when you take a piece of land, whether it be a farm or whether it be, or a ranch or whether it be an urban block, you're going to have an influence from pretty much the moment that the place reveals itself from the street or from the driveway or whatever, all the way through to when they are in the smallest room in the house or the nook or the alcove and they're having their most uh, quietest or intimatest or noisiest moments in this place. I think it's really cool. One elaboration on that just came to mind as you said that. When we talked about the fine arts earlier, for the most part, the fine arts, especially painting and two-dimensional arts, are distinctly different than architecture. Architecture not only has a third dimension, but it has a fourth dimension of time and sequence that you're getting at. That it does add a lot of complexity and nuance, but then for the same reason, it provides a lot of opportunity to really calibrate and script that experience. And there are some things that are very predictable, solar patterns and thinking about calibrating daylight or direct sunlight into certain rooms at certain times. But there are always just unknowns as to exactly how each space will be occupied by different occupants and over time. And that's a fun yeah, that's a fun, interesting fine line to walk in the design yeah. process, figuring out those components of what that sequence is and how much of this can we actually control? How much do we want to control? And how much do you leave up to sort of serendipitous moments that can begin to happen in the interactions? And so it's that those are all things that are uh, part of the process and, and, uh, and again, begin to. Um, become evident as we work through the different phases of of the entire design process. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's really good. I've got a few final questions. One is, well, actually, before I do this final these final questions, I want to ask. We're just talking about the arts piece and a home that um, was one that stands out just for me and your projects is, I don't know what you call this one, but it's the one where the car collection is. And Auto House, <laughs> and Auto House yeah. And these are pieces of art um, that can get moved around. And when you ca- take a collector like that, and they're, all, they're, well, not, they're, they're going to be visible. They're not going to be closed away. They're going to be engaged Tell me a bit about the brief that got you through that project and the joy of um, engaging these moving art objects. Yeah, that, that was it's a, it's a good example of how a custom program or a custom house is just that. It's, it's very much something that is a one-off piece that's tailored to the needs of, of that unique client. And in this case, the client's both husband and wife were former race car drivers. 
and had collected cars for a very long time and into retirement, had collected different cars and enjoyed working on repairing and work working on old cars. So it wasn't just a matter of driving them around and collecting them. It was also really working in them and even trying to teach others and disadvantaged youth and help helping to make it something that could be a little bit more accessible. And and so the, the really the 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 main prompt was to have a a container, a very large garage or just a hangar, if you will, for a large number of cars, about you know, 10 or a dozen cars. And then some, some um, about a thousand square feet for residents. And, and normally it's the opposite, you know, it's very, um, and so in this case, two or 3,000 square feet for, for the cars and then 1,000 square feet for, for people. And so it was, it was a completely unique and interesting challenge, both in terms of just thinking what that means in, for the overall massing and the form of the often. Often a garage can be an eyesore. It, it can be a, a blank box that needs, by necessity, needs to be close to the road to allow cars to move into it. But sometimes it can become something that's less desirable, that's grounded in a scheme. And in this case, since it was necessarily going to be a large part of the scheme, we had to, to think about how to compositionally work through the residential component and the car component. But it was also a code uh, challenge oh. as well. There, there are specific rules to do with uh, what a garage can be in a residential neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so we had to contend with these various parameters of, okay, what can we do? How can we work within some of the form-based code and the code to do with cars and how they move through? One of the, so one of the earlier schemes we had that they actually, they had always imagined it being the garage in the front and then a freestanding residence in the back. Right. Uh, and that was problematic for both of the reasons I described before, both the challenges in terms of we were concerned that garage would really feel uh, quite out of place uh, with just more typical houses on either side. Uh, but it also was a challenge for code that was not allowed by code to just have the <laughs> house in the backyard. I can and imagine so- code being like you are not building something that could be a car showroom yeah, and, and a residential, not- yeah, residential <laughs> neighborhood. <laughs> And and so the pretty early on in the exercise in the design exercise process, you know, we had the idea of nesting the two, of stacking the residential component on the garage, allowing them to interlock a little bit, and that solved really both problems. It broke down a bit of the scale of the garage and you know, gave it a little bit of differentiation and articulation, and then also allowed the residents to actually be closer to the street than the the garage. Um, but one of the one of the things that was unique about that. In addition to the to the disproportionate and, and in addition to all the other unique factors, yeah. But what that relates to what we were saying before was the clients were interested in having the potential for that garage to be converted back to a more typical residence, and so we did develop a fallback scheme, so to speak, where we were able to show that this is how this could be retrofit, and you know, how you could work with the where the plumbing stems out. Here's where you would put a kitchen, how that would tie in an extra bathroom. Here's how you would set up at the living room and where that would face. And so that was related to what we discussed before about adaptability and part of sustainability is being able to have that flexibility, how something could evolve and change and knowing that a future owner might not also have a car collection. So even though it was very dialed in and very custom, 
and could be used that way for, for them. They were interested in that both for the sake of resale and also just they were just also considerate people and thought of the fact that someone else might want to have some more flexibility down the road. And so it, it, as you mentioned from the, from the beginning, it was part of the challenge was, okay, how, how can we work with design this container, an object for to contain these cars that ultimately are the star of the show? And it's, mm-hmm. it reminds me a little bit of the way that museum design works, where the museum itself might have some character, but the, but the galleries themselves are meant to be fairly neutral to allow the art to be the star and you don't want the architecture to compete you don't want to have very loud yeah. uh, te- textures and colors in the, our space you just want to have some very careful diffuse light in all the cars so so in that way it was a little bit like designing a gallery where it, we wanted to pare everything else down so that these unique pieces of and cars that so that those would become the, the feature component and then once uh, for the residential component above uh, that became a little bit different, where we could then introduce as wood and different forms of metal and as shading devices and different components to, and even working with plantings and different components there. So it was a, a very unique challenge and an example where we had a brief that was certainly unique and really good clients that, that speaking of all the things we mentioned before, being open-minded to the process and let's see where this goes. Mm-hmm. To then realize something that none of us could imagine from the beginning, but that was able to check all the boxes of what it needed to do so functionally to, to, you know, in terms of the different sizes and flows of things, and then experientially of how it looks and feels yeah. and yeah. what filters light in, in each of the different zones. It, it, it's a fabulous project, and it, it captures your imagination. It is such a simple-looking project that you know it was never simple. That's the key. Like it's a great innovation is always simple and people go, oh, yeah, but it's only this. But what it takes to get to only this is really when you pull all the layers back and you could have ended up with something that looked like an auto shop with a with an office on top that they were living in or an office out the back that they were living in. And yeah, I think it's a beautiful project. And I love hearing the story of how it became because so often the brief, we see the outcome, but we don't see the brief. And the brief is actually the journey that creates the outcome. So, yeah. It's a great point that you're making about trying to pare things down for simplicity and things that look simple often aren't. There's so much work that's going to. I think one example that we can all relate to is the evolution of phones and what the iPhone does. I, I, I remember thinking how remarkable it was when it pared it down to just being one button, how much work it took to get under just one button. And now we have zero buttons. We don't have any buttons at all. And the, the, the Incredible. Mm. IPhone. And to think about how something that has, it's of course a phone, but is of course as a camera and a, as a music device, so many different things, but to pair that down to something that looks like it's just one very simple thing. There's so much work that goes into oh. making it so streamlined and the same thing they do with a car or whatever yes. it is like to be able to have this, this overall body and there are a lot of the mechanics of all the things going on are quite complex, but that in many ways, I think minimal design or very clean line design depends upon a lot of trigger work and finesse behind the scenes to make something really be be, uh, seamless in terms of its experience. I think that's a great analogy using the phone for that. If you think 
in communication, we went from, or distant communication, we went from being able to yell at people. That was about as far as we could get our voice to go. We started yelling through things because that made noise go further. We sent smoke signals. We did all these things. And now I can send you a picture that you will receive instantly. Within less than a second, you will receive a picture from my phone to your phone. We're on other sides of the world and we're moving that through light and air seamlessly with the push of maybe no buttons, as you said, no buttons, just navigating different parts of the screen and it happens. And if you take architecture as being that same thing, it, it started out with the core of a building and then it got bathrooms bolted onto it or whatever. And all these different things got bolted on. And then suddenly you are creating this thing that is more akin to like your phone where it's, just got these simplicities of purpose and a phone is no longer about being a phone so much as it's about being a camera or or or, yeah camera and or a a way to be able to access not just browse the internet but different apps or gps navigation tools but yeah absolutely the the camera is a big component but just generally being able to connect to information at the Mm. at, at the at your fingertips and it's almost hard to remember a time when you couldn't google something and, and, and that was obviously a big for a long time you just wouldn't know things yeah <laughs> just yeah. Not really sure. it's not and maybe you could refer to an encyclopedia and look it up but if it was too new of a thing it wasn't uh, it, written down somewhere yeah you had to know a person who knew a person so, yeah right. and so our, our expectations for technology have just exponentially increased where we expect to have all knowledge at our fingertips at all time we most <laughs> But again, coming back to that point that all that's encapsulated and embodied in a very clean device of yeah. a phone, and yeah. it takes so much work to to pare that down and pare it down, make it make it more ergonomic when it could have been something very complex and very easy. And so that's a, a lot of the design work I think in architecture that has that has that's the same thing. We, we, we have, as you mentioned, buildings have taken on much more complexity. One of those being climate control mm-hmm. that wasn't up until two or three generations ago. Yep. And so that's a whole other system that buildings have to take on and trying to find a way to integrate that seamlessly as well to where it doesn't appear as those attacked on thing where ceilings are suddenly dropped or where the different air intake. Or large ducts like you can do in commercial and you know, make them features and stuff like that. And then you can do it in homes as well. But just as you say, it's seamlessly hidden in the architecture and the interiors and how beautiful it can be. And nobody knows that it's even happening. It just is. It's like me sending you a picture on from phone to phone. Nobody knows right. it's even happening. It just does. It's Yeah, I think that's really, really key. And yeah, the amount of work it takes to make something seem simple is usually a part. So I'm going to go back to my questions now. First one is, in your own home, where is your most favorite space and why and what emotion does it give you? So I live in a condo downtown and so my home is maybe a, a bit unique compared to most, part, partly just in the sense that it's a it's a space somewhat floating in the sky to a certain extent. There, part of the reason I was intrigued to actually purchase the condo in the first place is is due to the the daylight and view uh, mm-hmm. that it affords, sort of mm-hmm. a flexible, flexible, simple layout that I've been able to just adapt 
over the years. It's a little bit of a laboratory to be able to park, you know, park in the studio, park workshop. But there's a space in the corner, in the southwest corner of the building, and so and then in the southwest corner of my unit, where the, the light really drastically changes throughout the day and throughout the year. And I re- I really appreciate being both inside and outside. There is you know it extends from my living room to the terrace. Yeah, I can. And, and I, I enjoy being able to straddle those realms between inside and outside, and between uh, you know, the, the different times of day and at night. There, there's something about that direct connectivity to the exterior environment, even though in this case it's not a natural environment. It's not mm-hmm. a extensive landscape. It's an urban environment. But it, apart from the sky, or, and I say apart as though the sky is oh, just the sky. You can see the sky. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, that would be the case. It would be really this this, this corner there to where. Yeah, the sun changes. It's so much between the winter and summer solstice and then capturing bits of glimpses of the sun setting each day, depending upon the, the time of year, whether it sets behind other buildings or not. Yeah. That would be my answer for that. And if it if you had to sum it up in an emotional word? Yeah, I think there's a certain uh, stillness, uh, like a calm, maybe calmness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It comes from that. I, I, um, I, and I think that maybe speaks a little bit to um, a bit of the way I think emotionally and mentally. I'm very driven. I have a lot of energy, but I try to have a bit of a calm energy. I try to make it something where I can manage it. And so I would say this sort of, yeah, there's a calmness that I certainly need in my life. We, we've talked a little bit before yeah. about phone technology. I think we're often so overwhelmed with input and stimuli yeah. and information overload that often what I seek and maybe others do is just sometimes a bit of reprieve, a bit of calmness. And I think that's what I find in, at home. Some And what we try to create in a lot of the houses that we design mm. are moments of where there can be a bit of calmness, a bit of a relief from everything else. And that gets to a little bit of why we strive towards some minimalism, some clean line components, just something to cleanse the palate sometimes a little bit. I love it. I love it. It's great. I'm, I'm fascinated by this sort of emotion of space. And so that was yeah, a really great answer. And it speaks to a lot of what you do and how you view the world as well and how you help your clients view the world that way as well and give them those spaces. The last question You've got one last project. This is it. You can't do anything else after this. This is the end of architecture for you. You can't influence anybody's architecture. You can't talk about it. You can't do anything. What do you choose? That's a really tough one. (laughs) It it is. It's a really tough one. And you don't have to have the perfect answer um, as much as I know you'd love to. Yeah, I, 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 I would probably say... That it would be, I'll use this word and then I'll try to explain it, but a bit of a mixed use project. And we, we often think of mixed use as a very generic typology that has to do with you know, three over one or four over one, or just some mm-hmm. stacked residential above some retail or you know, light commercial. Um, but I, you know, this relates a little bit to what we spoke about before with the pandemic and this needing for flexibility and uh, adaptability. I think we're more likely to see buildings in the future that. Um, have a lot more of a mix of typologies. And uh, I, I love the idea of designing a building that 
doesn't just have some commercial components and some residential components, or maybe some civic components and residential components. Well, we're currently designing a multifamily, a multifamily building and a, a historic downtown in a small Texas town that that is likely to have a, a civic art gallery in addition to residential oh, wow. components. And, yeah. and and it's been really fun thinking about that of how we can weave together different components. So so I, I what I would I guess the the answer to that is is a, a mixed use building that could really find a way to integrate and overlap the different types of use rather than just them coexisting in a building, but mm-hmm. separated in overall plinth or podium. Thinking how we can work with synergies between different programs, and so I like the idea of, of buildings that can really make it to where one plus one equals three somehow. And and I think we're headed that direction probably in terms of a lot of, as cities are constantly evolving, there's adaptive reuse. I think we're finding that zoning will need to evolve and that we can't afford to just have huge swaths of just residential zones and huge swaths of just industrial and just commercial but rather mixing of those. I, I, so if, if I have to give an answer on the spot, it would be something like that. Something that would be a bit of a hybrid, unique building and not just a, a singular chapel, for example, yeah. or a single one-off house. All those things I would love to do as well. But <laughs> you have to choose one. I would like to be some, some sort of amalgamation. Well, something that would amalgamate all those kind of different pieces and have the different pieces of personality that, that would run through as well. It's right. a great answer. It's a great answer. I, it's always a, a fascinating question because it's what do you mean I can't design anything else? I can't stop designing. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> it doesn't have a switch. It's always just present. And yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's yeah, so like it, it is and then it also harks to what you see the future looking like and it just about always because it's the last time you get a chance to play in that space and so the significance of how you see the future rather than just being in the present and architecture is all in the future until it's in the present it's always in the imagination until it's actually in the present you're creating in your mind things that will exist for for time for for long periods of time but it will take years before they actually exist. So it's an interesting game. Interesting game. Matt, absolutely fabulous to talk. I've got a wonderful page of notes for myself. <laughs> I really loved so many parts of our conversation. And I think it was a great insight into who you are and your considered approach to life and architecture and what you do with the firm. It's uh, wonderful. And uh, it took me from our first conversation about Descendant House through such a journey of understanding you better and understanding better the the importance of architecture from your eyes. So thank you. Thank you as well. I'm happy to share. Yeah, no, really fabulous. Have a great day. Thanks, Adrian. Cheers, mate. Hi guys, I'm Adrian. I'm your host of Talk Design Podcast. I started this podcast a couple of years ago and in doing it, my aim was to talk to amazing design people, creative minds, people who I could learn from and hopefully you could learn from. This was a big part of my whole reasoning for starting the podcast. We've cracked over 80 episodes and we've done two 
Homes Tour specials for the AIA Austin in Texas, which have been really great fun, talking just specifically about houses. We've talked to HGTV stars. We've talked to building designers, interior designers, architects, business coaches, and some inspired characters along the way. People who have captured my imagination and their creative output and gone, huh, these people would bring a story to somebody else and maybe inspire them to go a little further with what they're doing as well. So I wanted to reach out and ask you all for some advice because you are the guys who tune in and listen and subscribe, and I really appreciate that. So I want some advice from you. If you guys would be happy to share with me, A, what you like best, so that I can better direct what we cover as content. And then also, if there's things you want to solve, what are the three biggest things you would like information on? What are those kind of keys so that I can look and go, okay, let's find somebody who speaks specifically on these points and get some depth of information back to you that would be really useful in your business or in your life or in your home, whichever one it would be. So if I could ask you to do that, I would be forever grateful if you would share with me just through the email based on the Talk Design website, which is www.talkdesign.show. If you could just reach out via that email and say to me, hey, this would be a really great subject for me, for my business or for my family or for my home or for the way I want to see life. I would love to be able to support you guys and find those people that we could talk to that would bring that to you. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I so appreciate the fact that you listen to the podcast. It makes it all the more fun when I get messages from you to say, hey, this inspired me. I had somebody who sent me one the other day that said, your podcast, and we were talking on a certain subject, it was a game changer for me. It was a game changer in how I viewed how I was looking at what I was doing with my design and what was going to come from that. So these things make it all the more worthwhile. So please, if you could tell me top three things that would be useful to you, I would love to support you guys in delivering that. Thank you and thank you for being a listener. Take care, have a wonderful day, evening, wherever you are, whatever it is. Cheers, Adrian, over and out.